world is facing an extinction crisis. Direct causes include habitat fragmentation and loss through clearing for agriculture, invasion by introduced species and global climate change. Roots of the problem are unsustainably high rates of resource consumption in parts of the world and high population growth rates in others. Plants signal these environmental changes. They are at the base of most food webs and also provide habitat essential for other species. The consequences of plant species loss is thus profound, not only for us, but also for those charismatic animals so often the subject of conservation appeals. Rhinos, gorillas and even leopards all ultimately depend on plants. Yet 34,000 plant species, 12.5% of the world's total, are threatened with extinction. With limited resources available for conservation, efforts need to concentrate on the most important conservation sites. Many countries have embraced this challenge over the last 20 years and have expanded their networks of protected areas. The question is how to do this in populated landscapes where money and manpower are scarce. Udzungwa Mountains National Park in Tanzania, for example, has only 30 patrol rangers to cover an area of 1,900 square kilometers, a common situation in the tropics. A condition necessary for long-term survival of conservation areas is to ensure that stronger ties are fostered between those areas and local people. Securing the positive involvement of communities in protected area management requires professional work by dedicated people at the interface between societies and nature. The requirements can be demanding. Field work takes place in rough terrain and difficult conditions. A practical applied approach is also essential as long-term conservation success is certainly not achieved through rose-tinted spectacles, where an approach which works well in one place, such as joint forest management in India, is blindly applied in another. What is required is pragmatism, coupled to a sound knowledge of conservation biology, the social sciences, and of the economic trade issues often behind conservation problems. Plants are key resources for local communities throughout the tropics and subtropics, providing low-cost housing materials, fuel wood, basketry fibers, culturally important products such as bark cloth, herbal medicines, food, and a source of income that is important to millions of households. Focusing on these resources places attention on some of the most profound links between people and the natural world. This allows identification of critical issues in conservation and rural development and is often a key step in forging partnerships between local communities and conservation areas. This process requires commitment and a professional approach. Yet it is an irony of conservation efforts that those parts of the world with the highest biodiversity have the fewest professional ecologists. Ethnobotanists, professionals trained to work in a cross-disciplinary way between the biological and social sciences, are rare. Rarest of all are professional ethnobotanists from local communities who bring so many advantages to applied ethnobotany, including linguistic skills and local social connections. The People and Plants Initiative is a partnership program between three organizations. 
It was started in 1992 through close links between the UNESCO Man and Biosphere Program and WWF Plants Conservation to build capacity for community-based conservation and sustainable use of plant resources through ethnobotanical training. As a global program, it has regional components with projects in selected sites in Africa, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, a first phase study in Cameroon, and more recently, in Rwanda, Mozambique and Zimbabwe. In the Asia-Pacific region, projects are in Nepal, Malaysia, Fiji and Papua New Guinea. And in our first phase, projects were supported in Mexico and Bolivia. Training at professional level is provided in the context of field projects to build conservation capacity in eight of the world's 200 priority eco-regions and at several UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Over the past eight years, People and Plants has promoted applied ethnobotany through the production and distribution of several series of publications, including methods manuals, working papers and handbooks. It produces training videos and runs a website. Materials have been produced mainly in English, but also in Bahasa Malaysia, Chinese, French, Spanish, Tibetan and Nepalese. Many publications have been distributed to over 3,000 people, most working at a field level in developing countries. In addition, through hands-on field support and funding, 35 young professional ethnobotanists from Africa and Asia have been trained to master's degree level at local universities. Results have also included the establishment of five national or regional ethnobotany networks. Ethnobotany curricula started in nine university programs and a series of international and regional training courses. Although the sites where people and plants has been working are in very different parts of the world, they also have many things in common. Most sites are forests in Tanzania, Fiji, Kenya, Malaysia, Pakistan and Uganda, often in mountainous areas important as catchments and for biodiversity conservation. Most of the research and training relates to work towards resolving conflicts between forested sites and local people. What varies are the range of social, cultural, religious and political circumstances in which these cases occur. In this way, we have tried to take ethnobotany beyond merely producing an inventory of species and uses to becoming a quantitative, predictive science focused on applied problems that are a priority. One of the most basic needs for strategic conservation action is to know which species are present, how they are used and where they occur. Yet tropical ecosystems are incredibly diverse and trained taxonomists few and far between. So, how do conservation programs surmount this dilemma? Project Ethnobotany Kinabalu is an ethnobotany program based at Kinabalu Parks in Sabah, Borneo. Initiated by the People and Plants Initiative, Sabah Parks and the University Malaysia Sarawak, it provides a spectacular example of how training and incentives to plant collectors from local communities can result in great leaps in knowledge. 
Ethnobotanical training courses held in Sabah, including members of Dusun communities living around Kinabalu Park, focused on methods of recording and collecting plants. Over the next four and a half years, 17 local collectors from nine communities worked on a part-time basis to make more than 7,000 plant collections, including 372 specimens of palms. Kinabalu Park, with over 5,000 plant species, is famous for its botanical wealth, including the spectacular parasitic plant, Rafflesia. Consequently, Kinabalu has been a magnet for professional botanists since the 1850s. Over a 136-year period, professional botanists managed to document just 60% of the total number of species of palms now known to grow on Kinabalu. In contrast, the Dusan team collected 94% of the palms in just four and a half years. Seen from another perspective, Community-based collectors, in just 3% of the time in which professional botanists have been active, managed to increase the number of known palm genera by 82% and the number of collections by 103%. This example illustrates the close links which traditionally exist between local societies and biological diversity. Just as biological diversity is threatened, so too are local cultures. A measure of the extent of global cultural loss over recent years is a drastic recent decline in the number of spoken languages. A quarter of the five to seven thousand languages spoken today are used by less than a thousand people. Cultural loss is a serious threat to survival of biodiversity since a major part of the knowledge of these cultures concerns the uses and management of the natural environment. This has continued importance to resource management today. These resource management practices are often unrecorded, such as the careful and sustainable way in which bark cloth production is managed in Uganda. This is done through careful attention to season, tree physiology and requirements for bark regeneration, enabling a single tree to be debarked 30 to 40 times over its lifespan, providing a source of bark cloth from family-owned trees that has been sustained over centuries. In Fiji, tree trails, where local people from different age groups are asked to identify local plant species, shows the extent of this decline in knowledge among young people. One way around this has been to record local plant knowledge for the production of handbooks in local languages, containing descriptions of plants and their uses. In Pakistan, ethnobotanical clubs have been formed at some schools as part of a similar process of encouraging young people to treasure and retain knowledge of local plants and their uses. Similarly, in Nepal, the Tibetan healers working with people and plants also teach schoolchildren about the local importance of plants. Conserving biodiversity often helps strengthen cultural integrity and values, and vice versa. Tibetan communities in Nepal retain a holistic view of the world in which the health of the environment and of people are strongly interlinked, backed up by the worldviews of the Buddhist and Bonpo religions. At She Poksundu National Park, the People and Plants Project undertook an initial survey which identified conservation of medicinal plants in Himalayan pastures as a conservation priority. 
Social structures connect medicinal plant conservation with health care, since many Tibetan healers, termed amchis, have traditionally also been responsible for environmental management. The conservation imperative today at Dolpo is to devise methods of managing medicinal plants in the face of intrusions from traders to supply the vast market for medicinal plants in India. Commercial harvesting of medicinal plants at Dolpo is on the rise. At least 40 tons were exported from the region in 1996-97. A cross-disciplinary team of local people, botanists, sociologists and expert amchis were formed at Dolpo in 1997 to study the use of medicinal plants and investigate how their management can be strengthened. The project has supported the building of a Tibetan health care clinic in Lower Dolpo, constituted under the authority of a committee of local amchis. The centre will be used for medical treatment and training, as well as acting as a base to promote the field management of medicinal plants. Already, the centre has been replicated by lamas, acting on their own initiative, in Upper Dolpo. Two heavily exploited medicinal plants in the Himalayas are Jatamansi, Nardostichus jatamansi and Kutki, Picroriza kurua, prized in the local pharmacopoeia as well as internationally. For this reason, Suresh Gemir, with support from local people, has been carrying out a careful study of the growth and population dynamics of these two species. Like many studies carried out in this program, his field studies take place in remote and difficult terrain, requiring exceptional dedication as well as the support and involvement of local people. Right from the inventory stage, Tibetan healers have played a key role in the study, through plant collection and advice in setting conservation priorities for local medicinal plants. An African example is the red stinkwood, Prunus africana, a tree found in the relatively small montane forests scattered across the African continent. Widely used by traditional healers as a local medicine, Prunus became commercialized in the 1970s. Today, over 3,300 tons of its bark are harvested annually, mainly from Cameroon and Madagascar for export to Europe where sales of its herbal extracts are worth about 220 million US dollars per year. People and plants drew international attention to this case through careful research and documentation. This backed its listing on CITES, the International Convention on Trade in Endangered Species, and stimulated ICRAF, the International Centre for Research in Agroforestry, to start a major programme to promote planting of the species. In southeastern Zimbabwe is an even more extreme case of overexploitation, where the pepper bark tree, Wabergia salutaris, became extinct in the wild. Probably the most prized traditional medicine in southern Africa, its bark sells at local markets for 35 to 50 US dollars per kilogram, 50 times more than the wholesale price of most African medicinal plants. People and plants working with the NGO Sapphire, the Southern Alliance for Indigenous Resources and the University of Zimbabwe has reintroduced the tree to small-scale farmers in the area it originally came from. Local healers and farmers have good reason to look after the trees in their care and, as Chief Mapungwana explains, Yes, 
Yeah, between eight and ten. Naido kusima kuti nile ne a forest of muranga trees. Yes, yes, yes. With an estimated 60,000 wood carvers, Kenya is currently the biggest producer of wood carvings in Africa. The carvings are bought by tourists and also exported in bulk, primarily to the United States, Europe and Japan. The carving trade in Kenya started 80 years ago, based on the ebony Dalbergia melanoxlon. Subsequently, the industry has moved on to one new species after another as stocks have become successively depleted. This problem is well known to carvers, as veteran carver James Mukula explains. <laughs> The most important species today is Muhugu mahogany, Brachylinia hellensis. This accounts for nearly 90% of carved wood. 50,000 trees of the species are cut annually, including from small patches of forest along the Kenyan coast. These forests are of outstanding value for the conservation of biodiversity. However, felling hardwood trees for Kenyan carvings destroys key habitat for endangered species, such as the golden-rumped elephant shrew. The Ugandan carving trade is very different. It is much smaller, with only 280 people directly involved, and is based on lighter softwoods which are carved into drums of varying sizes. Nevertheless, as drum carving is concentrated around a few forests, it may also be having an ecological impact as the tall forest trees which are felled to make drums include species such as Antiaris toxicara and wild figs. These species not only provide a keystone edible fruit resource for forest birds and primates, but also nest sites for hornbills which disperse the seeds of these tree species. For these reasons, People and Plants has been supporting research to place the carving industry on a more sustainable basis. This involves studies of carved wood tree populations, the impacts of carving on those populations, the economics of the trade, and work with carvers to identify viable alternatives. In Kenya, there already is a move to alternative woods from introduced species, such as jacaranda and neem, that are fast growing. A local language drama, Bandu Bandu, acted by members of carving families, has successfully toured carving centers in Kenya. Posters have also raised awareness among carvers, tourists, and exporters of the need for change. At an international level, Kenya Airways has agreed to show one of our videos to tourists, encouraging them to buy carvings made from alternative woods, and we are working to promote certification of good wood carvings with Smartwood and the Forest Stewardship Council. To an extent, conflict is inherent in any conservation program based on protected areas, particularly where the short-term sacrifices towards the long-term goals of conservation are expected to be paid by local people, rather than being more evenly spread regionally or internationally. 
these conflicts increase with higher human population densities, more fertile soils and where resources are scarce. Integrated Conservation and Development Projects, ICDPs, are an experimental approach to resolving some of these conflicts. And an integrated approach is being applied in three sites where people and plants is working. Bwindi Impenetrable National Park in Uganda, Udzungwa Mountains National Park, Tanzania, and Ayubia National Park, Pakistan. All are important catchments providing water to millions of people and exceptional sites for biodiversity conservation. They also face conflicts over access to plant resources, ranging from dead wood harvested for fuel, access to medicinal plants, and sites for beekeeping. In Uganda, a public inquiry in preparation for transfer of the Bundi forest from the status of forest reserve to that of national park recorded strong local opposition to creation of the proposed park, primarily because local people believe they would be deprived of the use of forest resources so that, quote, white people can watch gorillas, unquote. Nevertheless, the park was created in 1991 and, consistent with national park legislation in many parts of the world, local people were excluded from using any of the forest resources. An upsurge of public opinion against the new park resulted in an increase in burning during the dry season of 1991-92. In Pakistan, Uganda and Tanzania, our approach has therefore been to carefully document how forest resources are used, encourage discussions between local communities and conservation agencies about the implications of this use. Where appropriate, such as around Bundi Impenetrable National Park, the concept of multiple use zones in protected areas has been supported so that local community members can use resources such as medicinal plants, species used for basketry and to practice beekeeping under stipulated rules to ensure that no fires arise from smoking bees when harvesting honey. Multiple use arrangements must be worked out carefully and collaboratively based on an awareness of priorities for both conservation and communities. There is no point in furthering resource depletion nor of escalating conflicts between people and protected areas. So a key aspect is to identify which resources are used, which uses are likely to be sustainable and which are not possible at all. Key questions on which researchers have been working are which are the most valued and most vulnerable plant resources? What are the impacts of harvesting on more vulnerable medicinal plant species studied through quantitative assessments of debarking? What resource stocks are available and what are the yields from plant resources such as fodder harvested in Pakistan? Or the growth rates of forest lianas used in Uganda to make granaries? What economic benefits can be derived from beekeeping and what are the best types of hives to use? In places such as Udzungwa Mountains National Park, where deadwood collection for fuel is allowed, is this sustainable and what are its likely ecological impacts? In Pakistan, the introduction of new measures is particularly complex since it is women who harvest fuel wood and fodder, but men who make decisions. 
In all three countries, viable alternatives, such as appropriate technology stoves as well as on-farm tree cultivation, are an important solution outside of the protected areas. In Uganda, the results of ethnobotanical surveys made available to the local communities and park staff through the NGO CARE resulted in the signing of memoranda of understanding between three pilot communities and the park. These permit the extraction of specified plant resources on a controlled basis. Benefits derived from the forest in this way have led to reduced conflicts at Buwindi, helping to assure conservation of its biodiversity while providing resources to communities. <laughs> Monitoring is a vital component of this process. Monitoring systems for protected areas are poorly developed, however, mainly because they rely on professional researchers who are scarce and expensive and rarely draw on the expertise of local people with great local knowledge but low literacy or numeracy. In Africa, People and Plants has been experimenting with innovative methods of monitoring, combining high technology with local expertise. The inspiration for this came from a system used to monitor rhinos in South Africa. CyberTracker is a system based on a palm-held computer into which monitoring records can easily be put by local people due to the use of touch-sensitive icons, such as those showing tree harvesting impacts. These are based on pictures developed with local harvesters showing tree characteristics such as the rough leaves of this fig species which is carved into drums. People and Plants has run trials to evaluate this system against more conventional monitoring methods. In Uganda, we have worked with carvers, local researchers and forest guards to determine the ecological impacts on trees harvested for the manufacture of drums. User-friendly pictures, or icons, on the computer screens depict tree diameter size classes and tree crown health. With a note-making option, before a GPS reading is taken to record geographical location so that records can be readily transferred to maps. In field trials, this system has proved very useful to local harvesters and scientists alike, offering interesting options for the future. At times, conservation initiatives seem to face insurmountable odds. But creative programs all over the world give signs of hope, even under the bleakest of circumstances. We believe that People and Plants is one of those programs. Our greatest hope lies in three things. First, in the keen young professionals trained under the program. Second, in the network of professional botanists, ecologists, ethnobotanists, social scientists and anthropologists we have linked up with across the world who may contribute to a training network when the People and Plants program ends in a few years time. In the longer term the future also lies in enthusiasm of children whose interest in ethnobotany is being rekindled. Our training materials will certainly outlive the program. They are already being used to train others at universities and in the field. 
Applied ethnobotany has proved to be a catalyst in the conservation process. Focusing on useful plants helps to open up people's minds so that they come to see the conservation world from a different perspective. In this way, ethnobotany provides approaches and methods of great value for finding workable solutions at the cutting edge of conservation today. And safeguarding our planet's plants is crucial. After all, this is the only planet we've got.